Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Governor Tom Wolf is our guest for the first segment of today's program. We will cover several issues with the governor during the next half hour, but we encourage you to weigh in or ask questions too. Call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Governor Wolf, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm trying to encourage uh, a little more engagement here. I mean, we, there's a lot of issues to talk about. Mm-hmm. I figured to let the audience uh, ask their questions today. But one thing I'd like to start with, and this has been, I won't say the theme of the summer, but one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the issues that you have been dealing with, the administration has been dealing with, and actually even the legislature, and that's the opioid crisis here in Pennsylvania. You know, I think often that the word crisis is used too often, but is it accurate in this case? Yeah, uh, it is a crisis. It's a, an epidemic. Um, in, I've done about 27, 28 roundtables around the state. And I think at one of them, at least maybe two or three, uh, it's been labeled a plague. Mm. In 2014, we lost 2,500 Pennsylvanians to drug overdose. Last year, the number was, I think, 3,500. And this year, it looks like it's going to be even higher. That's more people than died in traffic accidents. And and we need to do something about that. And uh, it's, it's happening to people and families all across the state. And that's why Republicans and Democrats alike are going to come back um, uh, after the vacation in, in mid-September. Uh, we're all rolling up our sleeves and, and, and going to do more to address this. You call that a vacation, huh? Well, uh, summer <laughs> I know what you'd be, recess. Recess. You sorry, I'll just play with you a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I got to get my government terms correct. Recess. <laughs> the administration, your administration, as you said, the legislature too, working on this. What are some of the major things that you're trying to do? Well, I, for example, I mean, it, it, it. Sam, there, there are two things we're trying to do. We're trying to give sufferers of substance use disorder more options and more resources for treatment. And we're trying to give medical practitioners, the providers, uh, more options, more resources. So those two things, in the, in the, in the, in the case of uh, the medical practitioners we're, we're, and, and emergency responders, we've already given naloxone. We've saved over 1,300, 1,400, I think at this point, lives. Uh, and that's just a, one, one small part of, of the overall. You have to bring people back so that they can get into treatment. Uh, but we've done that. Emergency responders uh, are doing a fantastic job all across the state uh, when they come across somebody who suffered from an overdose uh, administering this. And uh, we, uh, in, in this um, uh, budget, I asked for money. We got $20 million, well, $15 million plus, I guess, 5.4 from the feds, federal government, uh, $20 million for centers of excellence to help patients navigate their way through the health care system. I mean, each sufferer is suffering in, in a different way, uh, and so uh, this this should help uh, uh, them navigate their way through the health care system. Uh, we've been working with deans of medical schools to, to increase education on, on opioids so that every doctor knows what they're dealing with. If some other doctor takes one of their patients and, and uh, prescribes painkillers, what what they can do about that. Uh, we have a uh, kicked off just last week a prescription drug monitoring program for doctors. Uh, doctors don't want to be in ignorance of what their patients are taking so that they can make sure that they're not giving drugs that, that um, interfere with another drug that they're already taking. 
this uh, uh, monitoring program will help doctors make sure that they're giving the, the proper prescriptions to theirs. So we're doing things like, like that. There, we need more beds. We need more treatment centers. There are more things we can do. Uh, we've already done some things, uh, and, and I'm working with the Senate and the House, Republicans and Democrats. We're all going to work together uh, in uh, September and the next couple of weeks to, to uh, do whatever more we need to do to make sure that we're addressing this the way we should. The prescription drug monitoring program that you mentioned started just last week. I think most people... That's one of those things, and it's, that's happened in other states. Most people look at it and say, "Yeah, that's a good thing." It, we it didn't make sense that that wasn't monitored before, but especially now. But I heard something last week when it started. Now we always are going to have people say, "Well, what about this? What about mm-hmm. an unintended consequence?" And one that I uh, heard some people talking about last week is if prescription drugs, painkillers in particular, are not as available from doctors. <clears throat> that it will drive more people to heroin use. Yeah, I've heard that too, and that's a story that's an anecdotal. There is no scientific evidence to suggest that that's true. Let me say, just from a common sense point of view, if if a doctor sees that a patient looks like he or she is abusing drugs, that actually gives that doctor information that he or she didn't have before uh, and might actually lead to earlier treatment. Uh, it it it, uh, it could be a good thing. So so I, there is no 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 evidence to back up the the assertion that people will move to heroin. Um, uh, <clears throat> if 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 that were true, they'd be already doing that because at some point uh, your, your prescriptions run out. Even if you can you know get to the point that that you can keep a doctor uh, prescribing the the drug, it's it's still more expensive than heroin. Mm. So people are already move, making that move. I think what this does is gives doctors the chance to go to their patients and say, I think you need some treatment here. Let's let's get you into treatment. And one of the things that you just mentioned is what's so much different than the past is heroin is so much cheaper. Absolutely. And available almost anywhere in Pennsylvania throughout the country. I want to move on. And as I said earlier, uh, we, we've received a lot of emails and we're getting some phone calls as well, but it's not necessarily related to heroin, but uh, Governor, given the incredible success of Colorado's recreational marijuana laws and the resultant surge in tax revenue to the state, why hasn't Pennsylvania pushed to legalize recreational marijuana? I have to believe Pennsylvania's own schools would welcome the incredible influx of cash and almost certain boon would benefit our state's challenge budget. The uh, 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 I ran for this office uh, on the legalization of medical marijuana, not recreational. Uh, but I did run also uh, on the platform of decriminalizing the use of small amounts of recreational marijuana. Uh, and I think uh, in, in a lot of local municipalities that decriminalization has already taken place. Prosecutors in many areas are using their prosecutorial discretion to uh, downgrade this uh, as, a, as a crime. Uh, and and I, I think we need to do that in a more systematic fashion. There are too many people who are going to, to prison uh, because of the use of, of very modest amounts or, or carrying modest amounts of, of marijuana, and, and that is clogging up our prisons. It's destroying families, and it's hurting our economy. So I, I think decriminalization is the first step. Um, I'm not sure why uh, uh, we need to go beyond that, uh, and I think uh, we can watch what happens in Washington and Colorado and Oregon uh, 
and see what their experience is. I'm not sure it's been uniformly uh, great, but uh, I think uh, we have to wait and see. I, I I ran on the decriminalization, not legalization. But let me just follow up on that. And as the uh, emailer says that that uh, incredible, okay, incredible is a subjective term, uh, but it was announced a few weeks ago that Colorado uh, got even more money than than what they had expected. At a time when the state is challenged monetarily, you know, budget-wise, is it something you'd consider? Uh, I, I think the the um, uh, if you if you reduce uh, every issue to whether it raises revenue for the mm-hmm. Commonwealth, I think you're missing some important dimensions uh, in terms of the public health and safety of the, the folks of Pennsylvania. It goes beyond just raising money. Um, I think the jury is still out on 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 whether Colorado is addressing this, approaching this the right way. Uh, again, Washington, I think, is doing it differently. Uh, they have different pricing and taxing uh, systems, uh, and and so I think th- there's still uh, a lot to learn as to how much revenues Colorado is generating, uh, and whether other revenue streams are actually suffering because of of this. I, I just just don't know. So, I'm willing to keep an open mind uh, and and look at this, but. As I say, I ran on decriminalization of, of marijuana, recreational marijuana, and the legalization of medical marijuana. Those are two very different things. <clears throat> Let's take a phone call from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Um, recently, well, let me back up just one thing. Um, the state is in a lot of problems, and one of the major problems that the state has is the underfunded pension, which is going to bankrupt the state in the near future if we don't do something about it. The legislature recently passed a revision saying that new hirees to the state will be given a 401k type pension plan rather than the current plan. That was vetoed, I understand, by the governor. Moreover, a union representative made a statement saying that it was a good decision because it would have been unfair to the new workers that were going to be hired by the state and part of the union. Now, the union workers are a small percentage of the taxpayers of the state of Pennsylvania. And I want to ask the governor how it is fair for the union workers and grossly unfair for all the taxpayers of the state of Pennsylvania not to have chosen this option, which is almost universal amongst companies and government's going to in the United States. Okay, Bill. All right, thank you very much for your call. Governor? Yeah, okay, Bill. Uh, I Actually, I think Bill's talking about uh, the uh, a pension proposal that came across my desk back in June of 2015. It's over a year ago. Since then, we've been uh, talking, uh, and uh, the House has passed a, uh, a stacked uh, hybrid uh, pension plan. Uh, the Senate has passed a side-by-side pension plan. There's a little technical details. I said I would be willing to sign either one of those. I think the Senate and the House are currently, and, and my office, we're currently working on, on a further compromise uh, that will do the things that Bill talked about to be fair to the uh, the taxpayers and citizens of Pennsylvania and, and really address the, the issue of, uh, of the uh, unfunded liability. But Let's be clear. There are two things that we have to do. One is is on plan design, uh, and the biggest chunk of that was done back in 2010. Um, and, and employees really gave up a, a lot in Pennsylvania. Uh, but the second thing is that the, the state has to pay its bill, 
and one of the ways we have, uh, the, one of the reasons we have that unfunded liability is because for years, maybe 15, 16 years, the state has not paid its fair share, its full share of its pension liability. Now, there's no company in the United States, private company, would be allowed to do that. When I was in business, I, I couldn't do that. But the state did. And so this past year, this past budget that we have was the first time in 15 or 16 years the state actually paid its full pension obligation. That is what we need to do to, to address that unfunded liability. The design, we need to do to address the issue moving forward. Uh, but we still, even with the design changes that, that are going to go into effect, even if the de- with the design changes, you know, very drastic design changes, we still have that unfunded liability because the bills weren't paid. You know, Bill, one of the points that he raised in his uh, phone call, making a comment and his, and his question, uh, one of the criticisms of your administration since you've been in office um, from people who disagree with you, obviously, is that they say you're too close to the unions. How, yeah. do you, how do you respond to that? Well, I think that's that's nonsense. I'm I'm trying to be fair, and and I think uh, uh, as a as a business owner uh, and someone who who had uh, hundreds of employees, uh, I understand how important employee morale is, how implor- important it is to have a pension and benefits program and compensation that attracts good employees. Uh, we want good teachers. Uh, we want good state workers, uh, and we're going to have to pay for that. It's a free labor market. They can go anywhere they want. We want them to choose to come to work for us and do public work, uh, be public servants. Uh, so we have to be fair. And and uh, I, uh, what what I, I I'm not close to any institution, any organization. What I am uh, wedded to, though, is is uh, the the idea of fairness. That's fairness for taxpayers, fairness for voters. Uh, but also fairness for the employees of our state. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. If you have a question or a comment, we'll get to as many as we can in the next 15 minutes or so. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Let's take a call from Greg in Millersville. Greg, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yes, I read in the newspaper recently, our Lancaster newspaper, that more than 66,000 Pennsylvanians worked last year in the clean clean energy industry. And just recently, uh, my homeowners association here in Millersville denied my wife and I the right to have solar panels. And I realized that Pennsylvania is one of the most uh, carbon emission polluting states in the union, and yet uh, Pennsylvania is not one of the 24 states in the union that has a homeowners association uh, solar rights access law. So all of us in homeowners association hey, Greg, can I get you to get cannot, to your question? Cannot, well, I'd like to know what the governor is doing about increasing clean energy in the state of Pennsylvania. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Governor? Thanks, Greg. I think that's a great question. We, I, I believe that the uh, uh, the state needs to do more, and and I think your your example is is a, a good one, something we ought to consider. Uh, but we we uh, need to to uh, 
uh, I think, promote uh, clean energy, uh, alternative energy sources. As you point out, I didn't know the number was 66,000, but tens of thousands of people are currently employed, good-paying jobs uh, in uh, the alternative energy field. Uh, we need to do a, a better job, uh, I think, and, and I I think Greg is, is right in pointing out that, that the state can do more. Uh, uh, unfortunately, his sounds like he had a zoning issue. That, that, it was that at least the really, homeowners association, the home, yeah. Right. But, uh, again, as he points out, there's some things that the state could be doing. I, I'm, I'm certainly willing to consider those things. I, I think w- w- I would like to be uh, a state that's known for, for doing things uh, in support of, of clean energy. Uh, and so I think uh, he raises some, some good uh, good issues. What more can we do? I mean, besides just the uh, specific example that Greg gave, but... How do we get to the point where Pennsylvania is one of the leading states when it comes to uh, renewable energies? Well, I think I think we can take the better advantage of of wind and solar. Uh, we, the the uh, uh, photovoltaic cell industry is uh, creating much more efficient uh, uh, cells now than they did before. So so these solar panels that that Greg talked about. Uh, actually uh, are generating more electricity more efficiently uh, and I think I think the state can do more to encourage that sort of thing I've been in office a little over a year and a half uh, I have a lot of things to work on and, and uh, promote but uh, uh, again uh, clean energy creating the proper incentives for both producers and consumers uh, I think is a is something that we ought to continue to consider and, and look at this state has a heritage of course with coal oil gas, all those things. But here's what I wanted to bring up, and and this was an email from a listener uh, talking about uh, the discussion of Three Mile Island being closed. And, you know, she goes on to say that, uh, you know, nuclear and how much percentage of electricity is generated by nuclear here in Pennsylvania. Since we just talked about clean energy, do you consider nuclear clean energy? And would you support, I guess, expansion of nuclear? Yeah, I am. Um, uh, nuclear is clean from the point of view of its carbon footprint. Unfortunately, the waste disposal issue is a big and a, you know an unresolved issue uh, in in the industry. I think in Illinois, a number of plants are actually shutting down because it's so expensive to to uh, keep up. Uh, I think one of the, the challenges the nuclear industry has is is the in addition to the, the waste disposal problem is that it's surrounded by um, uh, states that are giving incentives to other forms of energy and it is being left behind. So it, we have to look at the, the entire structure to make sure that that we have a uh, a playing field where the the different forms of of energy generation. Um, are giving the the weight they they deserve, and especially uh, uh, generators like the the nuclear generators that that do generate power in a clean fashion, with that one huge exception of of what we do with the um, with the waste. We haven't figured that out yet, and so it's still less clean than solar or wind. Doesn't sound like you're completely on board. I, I'm. I, I. I've been in conversation. We're we work trying to work on on ways to to uh, make sure that every form of electricity that we generate, every form of generation, uh, has the proper incentives in in place so that we're not favoring one over the over the other. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, energy and environment. Uh, another uh, listener asked, uh, "What are Governor Wolf's boundaries on? He would not consider. He would not consider on fracking. 
would he consider a no fracking rule in state parks? Uh, I have a ban on state parks. Right. They, that, after I read that, I was like, okay, I'm halfway through that, and I know you do. But <laughs> anyway, what about how far would you go? I, I think this is coming from someone who opposes fracking. Yes. No, I, I understand that. And, and my I share uh, with that person the... Um, the, the absolute necessity of making sure that, that we keep our environment clean. I have uh, uh, been convinced, and I am convinced, that we can have uh, the uh, industry and, and have that industry thrive in Pennsylvania and take advantage of this natural resource beneath our feet, and at the same time, with the right regulations and the right oversight, uh, have the clean environment we deserve and, and need. So I, <clears throat> I am absolutely in agreement with the need for uh, uh, clean water and clean air. Uh, I have uh, uh, issued the strongest, I think, in the country, methane standards, uh, and uh, continue to work on uh, standards for unconventional and conventional drilling uh, that are overseen by the Department of Environmental Protection so that we protect our environment here in Pennsylvania. We seem to have an environmental theme here in the last uh, few minutes. Let's go to Shar uh, in Enola. Shar, you're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, many of us uh, supported the governor on his environmental stance, and it seems like um, it's been a slow um, degradation of the uh, DEP and DCNR. And the last straw has been the cracker plant, the shell cracker plant, um, that will be built north of Pittsburgh. Um, and um, the same kind of cracker plant is, was built in M Mississippi, and it fuels the plastic industry. And that area of Mississippi is termed Cancer Alley. Now, I understand that there are 6,000 jobs to be created in the construction, and maybe 600 once it's built. But how can the governor justify that, bringing that into um, Pennsylvania, and then giving it the largest tax break in Pennsylvania history of $1.6 billion. I'll take my call offline. Sure. Thank you very much for your call. Governor? Thank you, Sure. I, I again, think that, that we can have a clean environment and uh, a shell cracker plant. Shell is a responsible uh, citizen uh, and has passed through the most rigorous environmental uh, requirements in setting up this plant. Uh, we need uh, to do this right, uh, but having the cracker plant actually gives us the ability to do something more than just export the gas that's coming out of Pennsylvania's uh, ground. Right now, too much of this is being exported out of state. It's not creating jobs in the state of Pennsylvania, and the cracker plant creates the feedstock for products that can actually create manufacturing jobs. But Char is absolutely right, uh, and it's why I think Shell, it's important that, that we have a partner like Shell who is committed to a, a, a good environment, uh, that we do this right. How do you monitor that? Well, the Department of Environmental Protection right. Right. monitors it and, and through every stage of the construction uh, and, and actually before the construction, looking at the design and then the implementation. So uh, you monitor it the whole way through the process. And again, Shell, has, this, this process now is, what, four years old? And, and uh, I think Shell has shown itself through every one of these phases. They have 
they have not balked at all at the environmental uh, regulations we have in place. And I would suspect, I don't know this for sure, Sharp probably knows better than I do, but uh, I believe that, that the regulations, the regulatory oversight we have here in Pennsylvania is, is uh, much stricter than uh, the plant in the South that she mentioned. Well, I wanted to follow up on that question because I had to tell you I have something in mind, is that, uh, you know, I've heard from your Department of Environmental Protection uh, over the years that, uh, you know, as uh, the shale gas industry has grown in the state, that the, we don't have enough or that we're not hiring enough inspectors to monitor not just the natural gas industry, but uh, the entire environment, everything the DEP has to do. Do you think we need more inspectors? Yes, I do. And what what has happened as a result of not having enough inspectors is that, that it takes longer to get permits. Uh, now, in in this in my administration, that's the, the impact. And, and so we're, we're being, I think, uh, unfairly hard on companies who, who want to do things right, uh, but it just takes longer than it should because we don't have enough inspectors. So uh, I have asked for, for uh, money for the Department of Environmental Protection, uh, you know, millions of dollars to, to get up to speed w- with the right number of inspectors, uh, and I think that's a legitimate uh, complaint. We have to have more inspectors, and that's going to be good for the environment. And that's going to be good for business. Does it concern you that possibly uh, we could have some kind of environmental problem, uh, you know, whether it's a fire at a gas well or something like that, because we do not have enough inspectors? As I say, I don't think that is a consequence. I think the consequence is that things take longer. I think I think the people at Department of Environmental Protection take their jobs very seriously, uh, and they uh, are uh, doing everything they can to uh, enforce the regulations that are in place. Uh, it's just taken longer because there are too few people. I have another email here from Bob in Hanover. It says, why won't you, Governor Wolf, request that the Pennsylvania Houses pass legislation allowing Pennsylvania citizens to place a referendum on the general ballot after gathering the requisite number of signatures, uh, as can be done in some other states? I think what everyone thinks of when <coughs> there's expanded use of referendum is California. Uh, I don't know whether Bob's advocating that, but the idea he's looking at here is he think he wants uh, the people of Pennsylvania to have their say directly on a number of issues. Would you uh, support expanded referendum? Uh, I'd have to know more of what about what Bob's talking about. First of all, I, I can't demand that the General Assembly do anything. I really? Think is, yeah. <laughs> As, uh, you found year's, that firsthand. Uh, huh? That firsthand last year. But uh, we can work together, and I think uh, every, everybody, th- there's a, a general uh, inclination to, to make sure our system is as democratic and open as, as it can be. I, I've worked for that uh, in my own administration with uh, transparency and openness, uh, no, a gift ban, uh, putting my schedule online, things like that, uh, expenses from, of cabinet members online. Um, but the, the, and we have a referendum in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we, we have that now. Uh, we don't have it in the same form that California has had it, uh, and I'm not sure we want to get that open. We, we do elect representatives to represent the interests of the, of the voters, uh, and uh, where that's not uh, enough, we do have the, the referendum, and, and most, I, I can't remember 
whether every uh, election there has been uh, a ballot initiative or ballot issue on the uh, or, or a, a referendum issue on the on the ballot that we had to to talk had to weigh in on. Uh, but Pennsylvania has that, uh, and to Bob's point, maybe we we could uh, uh, expand that. But but I think the system is working pretty well now. Well, see, there would be some people who would disagree with you on that because I my guess behind Bob's question is that there are people in Pennsylvania who don't feel like they're being represented by those people that they elect. You know, we have very low turnover when it comes to uh, you know, representatives and state senators that somehow people are unsatisfied with their representation. Yeah, that's a problem. Uh, but I don't think the solution to that problem is necessarily the referendum as much as the solution to that problem is making sure we get out to vote and vote in the, the, the right people. Uh, and uh, that's why we have elections. Uh, the turnout in the United States, throughout the United States, is is lower than it should be. Uh, and I think the solution to to our political problems are more rather than less turnout uh, and participating more rather than less in the system as it exists right now. I wish I had time to talk about uh, reapportionment. Uh I see you shaking your head and agreeing with that, but uh, I know you have other uh, obligations here today. Governor Tom Wolf, thank you very much for being on with us today, and we'll pass these emails on the ones we didn't get to to your office. Great. I look forward to it. Thanks very much, Scott. Governor, thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Switching gears right now, uh, Lancaster's newspaper LNP raised a good question in an article last week. How are political science professors teaching Donald Trump? How are they dealing with this election year, which has been described as unlike any other? Trump is one of the most if not the most, uh, polarizing presidential candidates ever. Do college professors let their own political philosophies influence how they teach? Should they? Joining us on the program today, we have uh, three who were uh, even quoted in that article. Dr. E. Fletcher McClellan is professor of political science at Elizabethtown College. Dr. McClellan, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Also joining us is uh, Dr. David O'Connell, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Dickinson College. Dr. O'Connell, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me again. And we have Dr. Stephen Medvick, the Honorable and Mrs. John C. Kunkel, Professor of Government at Franklin and Marshall College. Dr. Medvick, welcome to the program as well. Thanks very much. If you would like to weigh in on this conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Dr. Medvick, I'm going to start with you because in that article that I referenced, uh, you were quoted first that you don't know how you're going to address the Trump effect this year, whether you can allow your uh, your own political philosophies to not come through. I'm not going to answer for you, so I'll just ask you, what are you dealing with? What are you wrestling with in your own mind? So here's the dilemma that I'm facing. In 20 years of teaching at the college level, I've never, you know, expressed my own preference for, for president or, or even suggested that one candidate was better than another or more suited to be president. Um, and I think, you know, it's of utmost importance to, to have a fair classroom, to be object, as objective as possible. But this year seems to be different in all kinds of ways. I think everybody recognizes that fact. Um, and the dilemma, I think, that's posed by the Trump candidacy is that if someone comes to the conclusion 
that the way he's run his campaign for the last 14, 15 months suggests that there may be some, some real threats to democratic norms and democratic principles. The question is then, does that person have an obligation to, to express that? Now, in doing so, of course, we would, we would say, look, let's, let's say that there are different viewpoints and students don't have to agree with me. And, you know, we're, nobody's even certain what would happen under a Trump presidency. But the very fact that whether it's racism that, that's shown up in the campaign at various times, whether it's blacklisting, you know, various media outlets, encouraging violence at rallies, saying that our election system is rigged and thereby undermining the, the, the legitimacy of our, of, of our elections and, and really our democracy. Um, those things raise really serious concerns and may mean, as I said before, that, that this candidate is, is a, a threat to democratic norms and principles. And if that's the case, you know, maybe that should be expressed in the classroom. I'm going to ask the three of you, and you know, once we get this through this first round of questioning, uh, feel free to jump in. I, all th- and by the way, I should mention this, that all three of you are on the phone today because the start of classes at your respective institutions, so uh, a big time of year at, at your colleges. Uh, Dr. McClellan, let me go to you. Your thoughts on it. Well, I, I have this, sort of the same dilemma that Dr. Medvick has, except that, you know, I think you know, there is a case to be made, you know, certainly a strong case that can be made that what Trump is doing is uh, really raising some real challenges for our democracy about, uh, um, you know, who we are as a, an American community. How do we define it? Uh, are we an inclusive community? Are we a exclusive community? Uh, who is a citizen? We also, uh, you know, the way he, he's running his campaign, he's coming on like a third world strong man. He's associated with or tolerated uh, white nationalist groups. There's been violence, intimidation at rallies, and intimidation in the press, and challenging the fairness of, of elections. So, all that is, is uh, uh, you know, is, is something that really needs to be explored in and outside the classroom. At the same time, uh, you could argue that, in some ways, he's uh, expanding democracy, or at least that you know, he's opening up democracy. He's reaching uh, a group of voters. Uh, uh, white uh, working class voters that uh, you could argue have been uh, ignored by the powers that be. They've been adversely affected by globalization. They have real concerns. Uh, you know, so, uh, and he's also sort of bringing to the surface, you know, conversations that have either been, you know, gone underground or are in only in uh, internet enclaves. So he's bringing out in the open some conversations that we need to have about race, ethnicity, and religion. I think that can be handled uh, in the classroom as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. O'Connell at Dickinson, uh, you have a little bit of a different point of view on this. Right, uh, I do. And so as I said in the article, uh, personally, I'm not even registered to vote. Uh, and that I think to maintain my objectivity as a scholar and teacher of American politics, it's best that I don't involve myself, because even the act of voting would give me a subtle rooting interest in that outcome. Uh, And, you know, I'm hearing the discussion and thinking about how uh, Professor Medvedev said that Trump is different and a threat and so forth. And to say that Trump is the most dangerous candidate, for me, that's already somewhat of a normative judgment. I mean, maybe the case is that Hillary is actually the more dangerous candidate, right? That her email practices suggest a carelessness with national security. Her Clinton Foundation ties suggest she can be pressured by powerful influences. Who am I to say which narrative is, is more accurate? I, I don't think that's, that's my job. I think students are free to, to make their own decisions on those questions and make their own normative judgments about the fitness of any given candidate for office. And so for me, the uh, 
a lecture isn't going to really change what I do in the classroom, uh, that I don't necessarily talk about current events all that much to begin with. Uh, if something happens that's directly relevant to what we're talking about in the classroom, obviously I'll bring that in. But ultimately I have a list of things that I want to accomplish over the course of the semester, uh, knowledge that political scientists have gained that I think can be useful to students in understanding not just this election, but any election that they're going to face over the course of their lifetime. Uh, so I don't know that I'm going to talk much about Trump in class, and I don't know that I would want to either. Well, let me, and we'll bring the other uh, two panelists in as well, but let me just go back to uh, you not registering to, to vote. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there are people who would look at that and say, you know, Dr. O'Connell, you're one of the people who are, uh, you, you know more about the process and know more about candidates and uh, our system of government, who would be a better candidate than most. So, and, and as an American citizen, I don't know, aren't you uh, not taking advantage of your responsibility? Uh, well, I guess I would say two things in response to that. Uh, one is that um, I don't know that my knowledge makes me any more competent as a as a voter uh, than the average citizen. I actually have great faith in the abilities of the American public, and that comes from my training as a political scientist. I know that having a few pieces of information, shortcuts, uh, that's equivalent to having all the information that you could have in the world, and people are still going to vote the same way that they would. Uh, so that I think that, that people are more than capable. Uh, I'm no more qualified than anybody else as a voter. Uh, and you know, secondly, the idea that I might have some type of responsibility. You know, Pericles said that a man who doesn't participate in public affairs is a useless man. Uh, and I would actually say that my role is just different. I'm helping prepare others to play a role in the the public arena. Mm. Uh, Dr. Medvedev, I'll start with you. Uh, yep. Your your thoughts on, I mean, the, the, the point that uh, Dr. O'Connell makes, uh, there will probably be some people agreeing him, not as far as the registry, I'm talking about the candidates, that there were some who will look at Hillary Clinton and say, you know, she's just dangerous. Sure. Um, you know, uh, people are going to come to different conclusions about that, and I, and I would allow my students to do that, uh, obviously. Um, but I think it's not a coincidence that there are so many conservative and Republican leaders. People have been active in the Republican Party for their entire lives. The New York Times counts at least 110 people who have been either served in Congress, served in past Republican administrations, or been leaders of, uh, of, the, of the Republican Party, who have said they can't vote for Trump. Now, what's behind that? Why is that happening? Um, you know, Hillary Clinton's a flawed candidate. There's no question about that. But Donald Trump is a unique candidate in, in modern American history in the sense that he's, he's, he's gone outside the boundaries of normal political discourse and you know, the norms, as I said before, the norms of democracy. So I think you know, that requires some explanation. It just requires some discussion. I mean, I, you know, I would agree with Professor O'Connell that in my class it's also the case that I'd say 95% of the discussion that happens this semester in my elections class will have nothing to do with the 2016 election. I mean, we're, we're trying to understand how elections in general operate. Uh, but it will come up, obviously. And when it does, I guess what I'd like to model uh, is an engaged citizenship, not a kind of detached objectivity, but, a, but, but somebody who says, look, I'm – I've, I, look, I think about this stuff every day. I do it for a living, and I'm really, really concerned about some of these things. Here's a counterargument. You don't have to agree with me, but let's take this, this seriously because I think it is a serious matter. Mm -hmm. But let me just follow up with that before uh, Dr. McClellan, uh, I, I talk to you as, as well about this. Uh, 
you know, all three of you know that there are criticisms of academia, that there are uh, instructors, there are professors who inject their own personal views into the classroom. And that's supposedly that criticism usually comes from uh, the conservative side. But so, Dr. Medvik, when you're talking about this and wrestling with it now, granted, you know, we want to open minds and we want to have discussions, be able to have these discussions that, as you described earlier, they're not just, uh, you know, no objectivity whatsoever. But that criticism kind of enters into this discussion, don't you think? I mean, I suppose, but I think that's a caricature of uh, of, uh, of academia, and it's a caricature of, of political science. I mean, n- none of my colleagues uh, go in the, into class with a, with a mission to sort of brainwash or to convince students to see things their way. I mean, literally none of them. Um, and do, think, do, do some of our viewpoints come in uh, occasionally? Of course they do. But usually uh, we sh- we'll flag those. We'll say, look, this is my view, my view of campaign finance, for example, or my view of the Electoral College and whether we should get rid of it. it but there's arguments on the other side, and you're free to have your own your own view. And so, I mean, I understand that criticism, but I I, I, I think it's misplaced for most yeah, of I, you know for most yeah, of us. Yeah, yes, Scott, I, I I'd agree there. The well, a couple of things. One, on a small college campus, I think it's really hard for any professor to sort of uh, keep his or her political identity you know secret. Um, we're called upon to do things not just teach classes and, and, and perform research, but we do a lot of things uh, outside of class. We advise clubs. Uh, if you're a political science professor, you're going to be called upon to make uh, uh, speeches. For a long time, my late uh, colleague, Dr. McDonald, and I did a kind of a road show, a dog and pony show, a liberal <laughs> conservative. When students do this sort of thing, uh, when students see this sort of thing, and then they see you, you know, back in the classroom, uh, you know, there's there's kind of a disconnect there that you need to explain. So what you have to do is really at the beginning of class is explain, listen, you know, I'm an American citizen just like you are. I do have opinions. You'll see me out on campus. I'll express them. But here in the classroom, you know, we're going to do this in a very professional way and and, and that the political views of students will have no bearing on how I interact with them, how I uh, evaluate them. If a student comes out and says, which, you know, it would be fine, uh, Trump is a Nazi or Hillary is corrupt, I'll say, well, uh, you know, give me some evidence. What on mm-hmm. what basis are you making these sorts of claims? Uh, and then let's sort of weigh the evidence and logic. Uh, so that, I think, you know, is the way you approach it. Another way you approach it, which I've done in my uh, senior capstone seminar, is to look at these sorts of things from different uh, perspectives, psychological, uh, economic cultural, historical, democratic values and try to get the the differences and the points of view out that way. You know, I described this in my introduction as uh, being like no other election. We've heard that many times over the years. Is it, I mean, in your careers, and Dr. O'Connell, I'll start with you, uh, in your careers, have you ever had to deal with an issue like this with an election that uh, it, it is different than than uh, any other? Doctor? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true that it is a different election, and that's because Trump is such an unconventional candidate. I mean, it starts with his his background. I mean, presidential nominees in the modern era, they're, they're coming from just four positions, right? They're going to be sitting president, they're going to be vice president, they're going to be governor, they're going to be a senator. So Trump not having held elective office, not having had that record that you can judge, and then the fact that, I mean, he seems to be kind of making up, uh, making it up as he goes, uh, sorting his positions out because he doesn't have a long record of establishing them. That makes it difficult from from an academic perspective uh, that, you know, when I'm talking about how we understand the factors that predict presidential elections, I talk about the importance of partisanship uh, and the fact that in recent elections you're having over 90 percent of Republicans vote for the Republican candidate, 90 percent of Democrats vote for the Democrat candidate, and it doesn't look like partisanship might be as powerful a predictor as it's been in the past, partly because Trump is not really a Republican in many ways, uh, that when we talk about the structural factors that say this should be in many ways a Republican-leaning year where you've got a president who's moderately popular, an economy that's kind of struggling along, and two terms of Democrats, which leads to national restlessness in the electorate, that might not be true either, uh, that those advantages are, are not something that Trump can maybe take advantage of when he hasn't run a campaign where he's established field operations and run television advertising and done all the things that you expect. So I do think it's an unconventional election, and that makes it difficult to teach. But for me, it's unconventional from that academic perspective. How do we still instruct students on what partisanship means and what are the factors that account for a candidate doing well in an election? I'm curious because uh, the three of you are teaching mostly young people, and we have heard that uh, we live in a nation that is divided, uh, that there is a lot of polarization, and some would argue that uh, Donald Trump uh, contributes to that. Uh, but I'm curious to hear what your students, what you observe from your students, uh, you know, because a lot of this they've learned from their parents or, you know, they form their own uh, uh, opinions. But do you see that political partisanship in your classrooms? Dr. Medvik? Um, sure. I mean, it's, it is a polarized nation, and, and I think uh, young people are as polarized as, as any others. Um, there, there's evidence to suggest, though, that they are looking to be political in different ways, not in, not in traditional uh, partisan ways. They're not maybe as interested in partisan politics, but they want to get involved, uh, you know, issue by issue, maybe on the environment or whatever the issue, you know, might be. Um, but they are, as most, as most Americans are, um, increasingly uh, hostile toward the parties. Uh, and this is something I grapple with in all my classes because it's uh, virtually impossible to have a mass democracy without political parties. Uh, and yet the one thing I hear from students and, and people in the community all the time is, can't we just get rid of the parties? And the answer is no, and, and even if we could, we shouldn't. Um, and so you, you have to push back. I feel, again, you have to push back against that. And, but you could say, well, look, that's just your opinion. Lots of people hate the parties, and are you, again, pushing your views you know, down the throats of your students? And my, my view is, look, if, if I study this professionally, right? Uh, I understand the way parties work, and, and while they may be flawed in certain ways uh, currently, they're, they're absolutely necessary. So the one thing I hear most from my students is just, you know, I, I hate the parties, and, and isn't there some, uh, some other way around them? And I mean, I, I, I try to push back pretty hard against that view. You know, well, and go ahead, yeah, Dr. McClellan. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, Scott, the, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. The, uh, when it comes to Trump, though, I will say at least last spring we did a, uh, uh, a community forum on Trump, as a matter of fact, as far as scholarship day. And, uh, you know, people spoke up about it, but very few, actually there were no Trump 
vocal Trump supporters. I think there is uh, a wariness about him. I think uh, if you want to call it political correctness, but, uh, you know, his views are very much challenged, uh, challenging to uh, uh, ideas of, of, of diversity and inclusiveness, which uh, I think uh, many, most students share. Uh, you know, there are some supporters there. I don't think it's very vocal. Uh, and, you know, in, in regard to the other question about, you know, how unusual this election is, I mean, I, did, I wasn't teaching back in the 1960s, but I think you would have to go back to that, mm-hmm. to that time uh, of, of, of social and political activism, uh, the Goldwater movement, the Wallace candidacy, uh, the anti-war movement, to, to really find this kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of conflict going on uh, nationally. And, and, and besides, I think, you know, Trump has been... You know, it's going to be hard not to talk about it in a lot of other ways. He's, he's been like a, an intellectual feast, if, uh, to, uh, to quote uh, Judge Gork. Uh, I mean, everything we've known about elections or thought we knew about elections has been upset uh, by his candidacy. Uh, an independent and outsider celebrity getting this far in presidential politics uh, is, uh, you know, is unique. You know, that, that brings up a really good point. And I don't even know whether the three of you have thought about this or not, but but you have talked about it, uh, have said that uh, uh, Trump has upset, uh, you know, what we thought we knew about elections. It, it's different in that way. Will you, the three of you, maybe have to change how you teach about elections and the political system because of some of the issues that uh, Donald Trump has raised? Uh, Dr. O'Connell? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, to some extent, depends on how things unfold over the course of the fall. One of the things that I've been repeatedly saying to my students is that I believe what we know thus far, and so when I see these Republicans wavering, uh, and Dr. Medvich make that point about Republicans saying that they can't support Trump and so forth, and, I mean, I say, well, we still got, we got a little over two months, and let's see what happens on Election Day. And if ultimately you see the patterns that, uh, that you've seen in the past, then maybe Trump's uh, impact wasn't wasn't as much. Uh, in some ways, this election looks a lot like 1992. For as unusual as it looks, uh, you know, maybe Hillary Clinton is going to win with 42, 43 percent of the vote uh, with a strong third party vote, just like in, in 1992, which was really a sign of dissatisfaction, I think, with, with both parties. And so I think we, once we see how things turn out, we'll know better how we need to change our teaching in the future. Dr. Medvedev, will you change Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think uh, at the end of the day, I think we're going to find that this election, like all elections, follows a certain kind of pattern. Even Trump's nomination, for example, which you know did kind of seem to throw a wrench in, in our theories of how these things work. I mean, the prevailing theory about how candidates get nominations is they shore up support within the party establishment. Uh, and once the party establishment decides on, an, on a candidate, that candidate typically wins regardless of any other factors. Um, so it looks like this year that was you know, kind of blown out of the water, except that the establishment couldn't decide on a candidate. And so in that vacuum, Trump was able to or he was able to fill that vacuum. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now there's a, still a question of why they weren't able to coalesce around a candidate. But had they done so, I still think that Trump wouldn't have gotten the nomination. I mean, we'll never know, of course. But I think that most of what we understand about elections, I'm not I'm not quite willing to throw them all out yet. Um, and, of course, we'll have to wait and see what happens mm-hmm. in November. But. Can I interrupt for just a second? Because I want to give Dr. McClellan, uh, we only have about uh, 30 seconds, Dr. McClellan. What do you think? Will you change in the future? Well, I think it remains to be seen what will happen after this election, whether Trump is uh, certainly elected or not. Uh, that will change things. But if he's not, as, as we expect, uh, whether he's going to parlay 
his uh, political success into a, a media platform whether he's going to, uh, probably not for him, but to mobilize a movement and whether that movement's going to be really important within the Republican Party or outside of politics. Uh, I think we do have a genuine social movement here that will have to be reckoned with in the future. Mm. I want to thank the three of you for being with us today. Dr. E. Fletcher McClellan with the Elizabethtown College, Dr. Stephen Medvick with uh, Franklin and Marshall, and Dr. David O'Connell with Dickinson College. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. We'll talk to you on tomorrow's program.